So this story, this feeding of the 5,000, um, is the only quote-unquote miracle story that appears in all four Gospels. Of course, each version is slightly different. Each Gospel writer has its own uh, spin on the events and their writing for their own community, for their own theological purposes, but this story is in every Gospel. Uh, in fact, Matthew and Mark record a second similar feeding of the multitudes. So this miracle story appears six times in the Gospels. It must be a story that is extraordinarily important to the early followers of Jesus. Even if the second retelling of Mark and Matthew were considered scribal error, some accidental duplication, uh, it was a story important enough for the first followers of Jesus that it was handed down from generation to generation. First from the oral retellings, and then uh, from Mark through the 60s into John, who was writing in the 110s. Now, Jesus was probably not having a very good day. He just wanted a little bit of time away, perhaps. You know, time to think, to pray, to reflect, time to recharge his batteries. In today's parlance, we would say that Jesus was looking for time to take a little bit of self-care, perhaps. You can't draw water from an empty well, you know, so Jesus was just trying to find some time alone. And who can blame him, really? I mean, he's been preaching a lot. He's gone all over the place, and he's healed people. He's told parables, and he's taught. And on top of all that, on top of all that, his friends have just told him that his cousin John has been killed by Herod. Now, I'd want to withdraw on a boat and take a trip to a deserted place myself. I mean, how much is one person expected to endure anyway? Surely a little time away would have been just what the great physician ordered. Alas, for our poor Jesus, it does not work. The people find out that he's leaving, and the crowds that have been following Jesus, the people who have been inspired by his teaching and his healing and his promise of a better world, they just keep seeking him out. In fact, they follow Jesus on foot from the towns. Now, our story doesn't tell us how far they went, but it does tell us that this deserted place was a boat ride away. The people followed Jesus on foot because they were desperate for what Jesus had to offer. And evidently Jesus could sense this because he didn't say, look y'all, I have given all I can give right now. My cousin was just murdered. Besides, it's not like I haven't been giving to you all this time. It's not like I haven't been tending to your needs. What more do you want anyway? I need to take care of my own well-being. No, Jesus didn't say that. He gets off the boat, he sees the crowds, and he has compassion for them. He continued to heal their sick. And as we read further in the story, we read that that was probably no small task. If there were 5,000 men, there were at least 10,000 people, right? Women, children. That is a lot of healing. And the disciples notice that it's getting late. They're out in the middle of nowhere, a deserted place, and they suggest to Jesus that he send them away so that they might get food. They're in a deserted place, 
Send them away, Jesus, so they can go buy food. Right? Makes a lot of sense. It's not like there's an IHOP around the corner, right? They just can't go to 7-Eleven and get a taquito and a 32-ounce Icy. They'd have to walk back to where they came from, right? Or fish or hunt or something. But the disciples think they best be getting what they're doing while there's still some light out. It's a familiar refrain. Send them back. Let them fend for themselves. They should have known there was nothing out here. They should have brought enough to eat with them, right? But Jesus isn't having any of it. You feed them, Jesus says. Do you all remember the show Different Strokes? Uh, in the brothers Arnold and Willis. Alright, so remember any time that uh, Willis would say something incomprehensible, Arnold would be like, what you talking about, Willis? Right? I could just imagine the disciples saying, what you talking about, Jesus? Right? What are we going to do? we got nothing here. How are we going to feed all of these people? Do you know how much we have? We have nothing except two fish and five loaves. But still, with a crowd this size, it might as well be nothing. <laughs> Evidently, the disciples were fond of hyperbole. One commentator noticed that it's just like human beings, isn't it, right? Our first reaction when we're faced with a seemingly overwhelming task is to look at it and think about what we don't have. Even overlooking what we do have and exclaiming that we have nothing. Maybe we think what we actually have is too small to make any sort of a difference. And there were only 12 disciples. Right? Even if they had enough to distribute, how were 12 people going to feed 5,000 people? That's a lot of work for just a very little bit of people, right? And often we get overwhelmed with we, when we look at the needs of the world, right? And we instantly go for the hyperbole too. It's easy enough for us to take a look at our own church look out those windows when they're open and feel overwhelmed, right? According to Posada, in 2010, the poverty rate for children was 31%. More than 1,500 children experienced homelessness during the 2013 school year. In District 60, families with children make more than 70% of uh, District 60's homeless population. Systemic poverty is the number one reason for homelessness in Pueblo. 20%. We have a 20% poverty rate in this town. Right? Just over 56% of students in Pueblo City school system are eligible for free or reduced lunches. Nearly one in three of our high school kids drop out before they graduate. And then there's the stuff on the national scale, right? The incarceration rate, the privatized prisons, alcoholism, drug abuse, domestic violence, crime, our aging population, teen pregnancy, gang violence, environmental degradation, homophobia, systemic racism, war, trafficking, so many things, so few resources, so little time. And it's easy to get overwhelmed at all the things that need to be done and all the people that need to be helped. It's understandable that we would look out on all of those things and decide that there is absolutely nothing we can do. Because there is no way that we could possibly care for everyone. Our default when looking at the world sometimes is to look through a lens of scarcity. And let's face it, our situation is nowhere comparable to those who sat with Jesus. They really did live in a food-scarce world. Us? Not so much. But it's not that we're greedy. 
you know, we're not hoarding anything. It's not that we want to protect ourselves at all cost and let the rest of the world fend for themselves. It's just that sometimes we get a little bit full of fear. And sometimes we forget that when it seems like there is absolutely no way, God will find a way. We fall into that all-or-nothing thinking. We don't have it all, so we must not have anything. We can't help everyone, so we must not be able to help anyone. But Jesus will have none of our defeatist talk. Okay, he says, bring me your nothing. And then Jesus does what Jesus does. We don't get the details. We aren't told the how or the why of the miracle, but it's there nonetheless. Jesus takes what is offered, he blesses it, and then he gives it back to the disciples to distribute. And somewhere in there, what the disciples bring is transformed from not enough to some left over. Don Crossan, when he lectures about the kingdom of God and what Jesus demonstrated in that kingdom, describes the interaction as collaborative, right? God and Jesus, us and God, working together to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. All of us bringing what we have, giving it to God, and that trusting God to do whatever it is that God's going to do with it so that we can participate in bringing about the kingdom. Crossan says that one takeaway from this story is that when we pass what we have through the hands of God, we find out that we have enough for everyone. And it's not just about the physical stuff. It's not just about money or food or clothes or places for people to live, although those, those are very important. God asks us to bring our spiritual stuff too. How often have we thought, oh, I don't really have that much to offer. I don't really have any talent that I can speak of. I really can't help much. But God will have none of our defeatist talk. When we take our lives and the things that we've done and perhaps even the mistakes that we've made, when we take our lives and experiences and we give them to God, God works a miracle. We don't know how or why, but a miracle is done nonetheless. We can take our stories, our lives, our experiences, and we too can feed multitudes with them. In God's hands, our experiences are transformed when we offer them to people by sharing our stories our lives can be transformative for other people. Now, like I told the kids, sometimes this story is referred to as Jesus feeds the 5,000. And plainly, that is not the case. Jesus might perform the miracle, but as theologian Don Hollingsworth notes, this doesn't reduce the call to discipleship, to the call of passive piety. Our call is to the active ministry that meets human needs. Hollingsworth also writes that Jesus transforms our humble offerings into more than we could have dreamt. And it's also true that Jesus is calling us to dream bigger, he writes. Jesus did not say, give me those fish and bread and I will feed them. His first call was for the disciples to change their ideas about their own power in the world. Let's change our ideas about our power in the world. And let's think about what we might be able to do for the next two, three, five people and weeks and years. Let's pray and ponder ways that we can join in active ministry that meets real human need.
We might not have a lot. We might not be huge in numbers. But one thing we do not have is nothing. A small group of people who can distribute to the multitudes a spiritual message that people need to hear. A message that God doesn't keep score. A message that God is love and inclusion and acceptance, not hate and exclusion and fear. A message that what God desires is mercy, not sacrifice. A message that says that we are not redeemed by violence, but rather that we are saved by love. A message that in a world that requires oaths and creeds and strict adherence to rules and dogma, we know that God's only requirements are that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. A message that building bridges to bring people closer rather than walls to keep us apart. A message that tells people who have been marginalized and ostracized and judged and condemned and cast away or cast aside, those who have been called heretics and abominations, that we know that God is radical grace and radical hospitality, radical welcome, radical love, and radical acceptance. That this is a message that can feed people. That this is a message we can share because we have seen the way that God can transform lives and hearts. Amen.